Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Clay Nelly with TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today, I have the distinct privilege of speaking with Dr. Brett Owens. Dr. Owens is a professor of orthopedic surgery at Brown University and chief of sports medicine. Dr. Owens was the author on a paper titled Medical Malpractice Litigation Following Arthroscopic Surgery. Published in the July 2018 Arthroscopy Journal edition. His co-authors include Kalput Shah, Adam Eltorai, Sudisha Pereira, Wesley Duran, Govind Shantaram, and Alan Daniel. Welcome and thank you for joining me, Dr. Owens. Thanks for having me, Clay. I'm excited to be here. Let's start right off with what you think is the biggest takeaway from the article. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to just thank Arthroscopy Journal for uh, for interest in our article and, of course, for having us uh, on board for the podcast. I'd like to really thank my co-authors, you know, particularly you know, Cal Shaw, one of my residents, who did a fantastic job uh, with this project from beginning to end. Really, the inspiration here was was Alan Daniels, uh, one of my partners, who's a spine surgeon, who's who, who basically tapped into a couple of uh, uh, verdict search and Westlaw, a couple of uh, lawsuit data sets and really explored this in spine surgery, which is, as we know, is a little bit more of a uh, of a treacherous uh, area regarding litigation, et cetera. And we've had a discussion talking about uh, arthroscopies and uh, kind of our thought was to was to pull them together and look at arthroscopic surgery in general and the risk of, uh, of lawsuits. And if we get a large enough number, hopefully we can maybe see some of the patterns involved. And so uh, that's what we did. And, and we did certainly see some patterns. For me, you know, probably the biggest takeaway, the thing that jumps out is is the knee practice. The majority of these uh, lawsuits uh, were involving the knee. Um, you know, of the you know, uh, 200 and uh, 40 cases that were involved, uh, the majority of them were in the knee. 162 were in the knee, and um, of the uh, 20 deaths that were involved, 19 were in the knee. And 16 of those you know, involve uh, pulmonary embolism. And uh, all the uh, 10 wrong size surgeries uh, that were in this data set were also uh, from the knee. So those are some of my, you know, my take homes. You know, certainly, um, vascular complications, patient death, uh, those were the things that, and wrong sided surgeries were certainly the ones that uh, were more likely to result in a plaintiff. Uh, verdict uh, or settlement. That was definitely interesting. I mean, certainly um, medical malpractice is not something that any of us necessarily want to talk about all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, when you practice long enough, hopefully none of us are ever named. But if you practice long enough, you're definitely going to know somebody or whether it be a partner or a friend or somebody else that's been named. And I think one of the statistics in the article that jumped out to me um, that you uh, quoted from another article is that 14% of orthopedic surgeons are named in a malpractice litigation annually. And so if you think about that, you know, if you add up a, you know, 25 or 30 year career, that's a pretty high percentage of surgeons that obviously get named pretty regularly. So it's out there. Oh, I, I think you're definitely right. Yeah. The, the saying is that, you know, every orthopedic surgeon in their lifetime, at least on average, will be sued once. It certainly is a litigious environment. You know, certainly my partner, Dr. Alan Daniels in the spine is a little bit more serious. We think about that a little bit more. Of course, they pay a higher malpractice, but you know, the most one of the most common procedures in orthopedic surgery is, is an arthroscopy, particularly a, a knee arthroscopy. You know, the good news for orthopedic surgeons or take-home message is that in general, 
uh, in, in general, there were not a, a lot of losses. Now, obviously, we don't have the denominator here, but you know, over these multiple years covered using a couple of different you know data sets, is you know relatively small numbers of lawsuits involved, given the high volume of these procedures you know that are being done. Yeah, can you expound a little bit more um, in regards to you know the surgeries that are inherently inherently more at risk? Do you think the knee arthroscopy is kind of obviously strictly because there's you know more of them being done, and then the complications were more more so related to pulmonary emboli and DVTs, and so lower being a lower extremity that has a factor at play. I mean, is that the main reasons for? It? Do you think there are other factors at play that necessarily make knee arthroscopy the one that kind of showed up as the most risky, or the you know the one that had the most uh, malpractice litigation portions attached to it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting point. I would say I'll be careful about kind of our conclusions based upon the data since you know, this is a, uh, a collection of cases that were filed that were at least visible through these data set queries. But you know, we, you know, we were not able to look at the denominator of the cases that were involved. So you know, maybe there are some areas that are fewer and particularly maybe wrist or elbow arthroscopy, there you know, a lot fewer are done, um, but of course there are fewer lawsuits. Um, you know, I think we really wanted to look at some of the patterns in, that were involved, and the patterns really did somewhat reflect the uh, what we what kind of makes sense about the practice. You know, in the you know the shoulder did have a fair number of cases. Um, a lot of these were neurologic complications, which is not surprising given. Uh, given the proximity of the nerves uh, and also the blocks, a lot of more block related um, in the, and we saw a similar pattern in the hip and in the elbow where we know that you know, certainly the neurologic structures are close and certainly those, it makes sense that those are uh, neurologic complications were involved in those, even though there's not a large number. In elbow, there were eight total lawsuits, but seven of those were neurologic. And, you know, of those eight, two settled and two uh, were a, a verdict to the plaintiff. Um, in hip arthroscopy, three of the five were, were were neurologic complications. And only one of those was awarded to the plaintiff and four, you know, towards the defense. So, you know, each of these were, were, were kind, of, kind of makes sense given the anatomy that's involved. I think you're right, the take-home points about the knee, just the, the, the sheer volume of, of knee arthroscopy, certainly that, uh, was reflected in the you know, the number of lawsuits. I think certainly lower extremity surgery is, and certainly in a lot of these being in patients with comorbidities, we see risk of deep venous thrombosis uh, with resultant pulmonary embolism and sometimes even death, unfortunately. You know, of the 20 deaths that were in this set, um, 16 of, 19 of them were from the knee and 16 of them were the result of pulmonary embolism. And, and that is you know, concerning. So um, you know, certainly that has overlays on how we practice and maybe recommendations regarding uh, regarding DVT prophylaxis. Do you routinely um, use any type of you know, DVT prophylaxis for just your routine knee arthroscopies or any, any of your knee arthroscopies in particular? I do. I think if a patient doesn't have any history, I I usually will use a, a baby aspirin. You know, I don't have clear data on that. Um, most of us rely on at least on the arthroplasty world for the you know long-term data on 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 at least you know uh, both 
DVT and fatal pulmonary embolism uh, prophylaxis with aspirin, I tend to not want to use a riskier um, blood thinner unless the patient has a known history uh, of a clot or uh, a clotting disorder. Uh, oftentimes, patients are on blood thinners. Uh, certainly, we try to resume those and coordinate with their primary care doctor, hematologist, et cetera. And what we don't know about looking at this data set before we really make conclusions based upon it is that you know, we don't know any of the history of these patients. We don't know if they were had a, right. uh, a clear predisposition to clot. Maybe they were already on a blood thinner, and it was kind of known that they would be at risk for clot. So we, we really know very little about it. But, again, a real you know, take-home message is that um, you know, death from pulmonary embolism certainly sometimes, at least we've seen here in this, with this query, that it, it does sometimes result in, in, in lawsuit. And I think something as simple as a, a baby aspirin, oftentimes people will use. So yes, to answer your question, I do. Do you? I do. Yeah, I, I do the same thing as you, unless, you know, unless they have some sort of contraindication or they had some other uh, comorbidity where they're already taking a anticoagulation. I, I do a baby aspirin, even for just, you know, what, you know, routine or relatively straightforward knee scopes. And yeah, like you, I don't know if that's necessarily based on a ton of uh, perfect science or perfect literature, but especially after reading this study, I, I kind of am bolstered to say that I definitely would continue that or make sure that that happens all the time. Um, uh, yeah, all you, all you need is one, right? I mean, right, I, used exactly. to not do it in, I used to not do it in kids and, and I had a 16 year old uh, get a DVT and a PE uh, and mm. she was all right. But, but again, all it takes is one and, 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 um, uh, certainly, you have to think about it. Another question that I always get asked by my residents is to prophylax for shoulders, and I usually don't. Um, it's very rare. You know that that said that said a couple of years ago, I had a uh, I did have an upper extremity DVT uh, from a shoulder arthroscopy. So I guess oh, I'd wow. ask your opinion there on that. Yeah, uh, I don't routinely do it for for shoulders myself, but um, I have partners that do. Some of my shoulder shoulder and elbow partners do routinely do it, especially for the, some of the bigger cases where the you know if the patient's in the you know beach chair a certain position for a prolonged period of time with an in an arm holder or that sort of thing. Sure. Or arthroplasty for sure. Right, or arthroplasty for sure. You mentioned the uh, one thing that was interesting to me. You mentioned the blocks and and some of the uh, litigation being related to blocks. It's interesting. I almost uh, expected there to be a little bit more related to that because I think anybody that you know, with the prevalence of blocks becoming more and more prevalent in this multimodal pain that, um, management that we're all trying to work with, you know, we've all experienced some blocks that maybe lasted a little longer or even had some persistent neurologic, uh, you know, compromise or issues. I'm, I'm kind of actually surprised that um, it wasn't even a little bit more frequently, but I guess that's a good thing. I think it is a good thing. I, I think it's not, I was a little surprised we didn't see more on the shoulder also. Certainly that's one area where we see um, not just the surgeon involved, but the the surgeon, the uh, anesthesiologist, anesthetist, and usually, of course, usually the facility that's involved also. Now, as, as you know, it sometimes can be confusing, especially to the patients and the lawyers, you know, what was involved or why there's this deficit afterwards. Um, and we've all seen them, you know, in, in our practice, usually to the, usually to the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist is pretty clear, particularly with the distribution, but, you know, sometimes it's not clear. Uh, but we all see, you know, the literature on blocks really is primarily pro produced by anesthesiologists, and um, they look primarily at pain control, et cetera, and, and most of the conclusions is that they're safe. And I think 
surgeons usually see the follow-up a lot better than the anesthesiologist because we're seeing right. them in the office all the time. And uh, we all have patients that come in with uh, numb fingers, numb toes, et cetera. And uh, uh, sometimes the block, you know, is to blame. The good news is yes, at least in my practice, I've seen most of these do come back, even though certainly it's, it's, it's always hairy as a surgeon when you're watching uh, someone kind of complain of a, uh, of a numb area and you never mind a, a, a motor complication. Absolutely. Dr. Owen's article titled Medical Malpractice Litigation Following Arthroscopic Surgery can be found in the July 2018 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Dr. Owens, thank you for joining us today. Clay, thanks for having us. I had a great time. Great. This, this concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please join us next time.